Homestyle Green, episode 184, from rocket scientist to house scientist. G'day and welcome back to another episode of Homestyle Green. This is the podcast dedicated to inspiring people to make a better place to live. Jason Quinn is an inspiring guy and he's not just a house scientist, he's a building scientist. But before that, he was a genuine rocket scientist. That's right, he used to work for NASA, and I'll let him explain why he chose to move him and his family over to New Zealand and start become, becoming a building scientist. Jason's now the only certifier of passive houses in the country, and he's had something to do with all 24 of the certified passive houses that he has just written a book about. And if you stick around to the end of the show, I can tell you how you can get your hands on a free copy of Jason Quinn's book. So here he is, rocket scientist turned building scientist, Jason Quinn. So I uh, spent most of my life working to get into NASA in the United States. So I managed to get a job there about, oh, it's almost 20 years ago now. So I spent about 10 years at NASA Langley. Well, I'm sorry, at NASA Marshall and a few years at NASA Langley as well. I'm um, doing propulsion physics. Yeah. So rocket propulsion, propulsion systems for large vehicles, that sort of thing. And I'd done that for, well, a little over a decade. And then uh, came to a kind of a crossroads when I had my son, Zachary, who's now 10, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's like, well, am I going to do this just my life? Is this what I want to do? Or, or do I want to change? And I, at the time, you know, climate change is really in the news now. But even 10, even 20 years ago, it was in the news a bit. And it's like, well, what am I going to tell my son when he's 25 and we're facing issues? Like, I just played at NASA, and we didn't actually, because, to be quite honest, the large rockets I was working on weren't going to get built. And they, those programs got canceled. And they're going to continue to get canceled because of money problems. So um, I was like, I'm going to spend my career having a great time with really cool people, but we're not ever going to build anything. And being, so a, rocket, gonna... being a rocket scientist? Yeah, it was fun being a rocket scientist. I loved yeah. it. But I was like, I need to do something else. So I, re I retired, effectively. I took an early retirement out of NASA and moved to New Zealand with my wife and son. And we've been here ever since. It's funny because it, the, the classic joke is, oh, it's not rocket science. It, you literally were a rocket scientist. But you point out the fact that you felt like you weren't actually doing anything. You, you were, it was fun being a rocket scientist, but you, you, you weren't, none of those things were actually going to be anything real in the real world. No. So I was working on large vehicles. So, you know, NASA's doing a lot of really good work on crew vehicles and small science experiments and some really good physics work. But they don't have the capacity right now with to maintain the programs they have as well mm -hmm. as build a large vehicle. Um, and, I, and I think that that's probably going to continue to be the case throughout the rest of my lifespan. So, um, yep. so it's unfortunate, but it's true. But so now what you do is very practical because it's working on things that people interact with all the time, yeah. as in houses. Um, but was, was your, background, your background was physics, right? So my background is engineering. So I've done mechanical engineering and aerospace engineering and combustion physics and such. Mm. And so, how, um, so how does that cross over? How does well, that cross over to what you do now? Well, it's all physics, right? So mm -hmm. um, if you deal with buildings with moisture problems or how much energy they use, it's all just modeling how the outside physical environment works with the buildings and the environments inside them. Mm -hmm. So it's the math is really similar. So whether you're designing a liquid oxygen feed, li uh, feed line for the oxidizer in a rocket engine or the fuel, or you're designing a home, the, the equations you use are the same, and the physics or processes are the same. So it's very, very easy to transition from one to the other. That, for, it, the, for the layperson, could make houses sound very complicated and scary. Is that, are they? 
They can be, yes. Uh-huh. Um, it's a bit of a problem when we take a house and we change things. Um, we used to build houses. We built houses the same way for you know several hundred years. And then we started doing different things, like putting in all kinds of new materials and new products, mm-hmm. insulation, and heating systems, and, and all that stuff can interact in somewhat unpredictable ways. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. So w- when that happens, you either have to understand the physics so you can design it correctly from the start, or you just have to trial and error it. Yeah. You, you yeah. just build something and see what happens. And unfortunately, because things are changing so rapidly in our modern culture, there's not really time to build things and see how they work. Mm. Because, you know, we by the time we figured out how that's, well, this is how this particular product works, we've already moved on to something. Like Yet we do that in manufacturing. We do that with cars. We do it with cell phones. Yeah, but if you develop a car, you've already spent several, sometimes even several hundred million dollars on developing a prototype of car, right? Mm. So they'll, they'll spend, they'll do wind tunnel tests on a car to make sure the wind flows over the car exactly the way they want to. And they'll do all kinds of manufacturing prototypes and they'll build prototype cars. And then they finally get one that works and they've got all the, hopefully, all the kinks worked out. And then they'll put it into production. And even with that, you still get recalls, right, where they make mistakes. Why do we not do that with houses? Because everybody's house is custom. Why? Well, I think because we like them that way. Mm. Um, it's become because, I mean, much more than even a car, a house is, if you're getting a custom house, house built, it becomes part of your personality. Yeah. So people, because we can custom build them, we do. We don't mm. mass produce houses. Yeah. Um, and by we, we're talking around the uh, world. West- or no, Western societies at least. Western right. societies, New Zealand, yeah. the United States, Canada, yeah, most yeah. of Europe. Yeah, good chunk. How, when did you first hear about Passive House? I believe, oh, I couldn't tell you exactly, but I wager it was around 2010 or 2011, about mm-hmm. the time I got into Passive House, actually. Mm-hmm. So it was um, one of those uniquely New Zealand stories, right? You're in a provincial town of Wanganui, and uh, you decide, <laughs> the okay, House, well... The Passive House capital of New Zealand. It was for a while. I think now we've been passed up by some of the other larger cities. But yeah, but um, yeah. So um, you know, you, you're like, oh, I think I think probably building physics is a good choice for me to do some things. Start talking to folks in town. The next thing you know, I'm talking to John Aleph from E House. Yep. And um, they were still building their first prototype building. And uh, yeah, so it was back in 2011. And got into it at that point. And yeah, it's it's it was quite an easy transition for me. Like I said, because the equations are the same. So. It's it's interesting story because you you uh, moved fairly easily in your perspective sideways into the building industry, having not been a builder or an architect, um, and and an engineer in a completely different field. But like you say, you, you you're now one of the leading well, you are the leading expert in passive house in New Zealand um, as a as a certifier. But you've come at that sideways. Is that? Has that had any other consequences for you as a professional in the industry? Um, I imagine so. I mean, just in terms of setting up a business and moving into the industry, mm. I mean, I had to build up those contacts slowly over time. Yeah. Um, whereas somebody who's got into architecture, as a, as a, somebody who's got into past houses as an architect, they may have already had 10 years in the industry. And they, so they already have all the connections. So they're merely upskilling effectively. Mm. And now they're designing better buildings they perform. So they've already got all the connections to move forward with that. But do you think it's also enabled you to look at the whole industry with a, a fairly objective, critical eye? Yes. I mean, it helps not being involved in the leaky building crisis, for example, right? So <laughs> yeah, I can yeah. poke fun at it. I mean, I try not to because it's not fair. Hindsight's, yeah, yeah. hindsight's not fair sometimes. But I mean, you know, I can say, oh, well, you know, the real cause of the leaky building crisis isn't, for example, people say they blame the builders or they blame the materials. I blame the 
the building scientists who encourage us to put insulation in the buildings without training everyone yeah, as to what happens yeah. when you do that, right? Yeah, so you're blaming so, your, your own kind. <laughs> right, yeah, blaming myself effectively if I was back in the past. But since yeah. I missed that phase, um, I can do that. So it's a little bit easier sometimes. And this, that sentiment comes out in the, the content of your book where you acknowledge people like brands for the work that they're doing and the research, which I think is a, is a mature and much needed perspective because there's a lot of blaming going on and brands often comes up as a as yeah. a um, as the bad guys as as yeah. do um, group home builders and and you don't really go there you you just lay out the facts and also acknowledge people who are sort of coming around to to some of this learning and I, I think that's a it's a we need more of that. Thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> so you you learn a bit about passive house. Um, uh, you've. I really like the way that you've you've laid out, uh, you've summarised what Passive House is. But your just the the introduction to your book, I think, is is so applicable because it it lays out some really key facts about where we are in the industry around um, the quality versus quantity. Just um, what's your take on on the so-called housing crisis as it's labelled at the moment? And by housing crisis, you mean the fact that we don't have enough houses? Well, that's what this, the common uh, story is in the media, right? Yeah. Um, so house supply is pretty complicated. Mm. And I guess my view on house, the housing crisis, the current housing supply issue, is that you can't expect the market to handle that because the market's designed to maximize profit. Mm -hmm. So maximizing the number of houses will not maximize profit. So that's kind of a silly question. Um, if you want to maximize houses, you need to design a system that's designed to maximize the number of houses, and that's not what we have. So the the market is doing exactly what it's supposed to do, is which is to make the people who build houses as wealthy as possible. Yeah, um, and that's not that's nothing on that. I mean, actually, in the United States, if you have a company, it's actually illegal to do something that would make you less profitable. Yeah, if you have shareholders, yeah. right? Because yeah. it begins a law. So, um, so you know, if if we want to have more houses, then you need to have some kind of mechanism that design that pushes you towards more houses. Mm. You know, there's, it's a whole complicated mix of constrained land supply, constrained building uh, construction ability, and, and, uh, and other issues with supply in, in New Zealand. So given that that issue of supply gets so much media attention, how do we cut through with the message around quality? That's a good question. I don't think I know the answer. I mean, this book is my is my cut at it. Yeah. In talking in talking to the government and politicians, and that's what the process I'm working through with this book. Yeah. I mean, we've got. It doesn't help if you build a whole bunch of houses that you then that that suck. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to be blunt, I mean, the, you, when you talk about houses, people talk about a lot of things, and one mm. of the one that's that perhaps I have the most difficulty handling is when people talk about cost. So let's talk about that one. So when you talk about high-performance homes like passive houses and you talk about cost, people want to talk about the first cost, right? The cost at the, at when they pay for the down payment of the house. Yep. But they don't want to – but that's like saying, well – and they want to save money on that. And I understand mm. that. I do mm. too. I'd like a new house that costs less. But the reality is it's sort of like saving on your food budget by not feeding your children. Right? It's <laughs> right. stupid. Because like, feeding the children is assumed as something you want to do when you do your grocery budget. Mm. It's not like, ah, oh, I can cut out all the food for them and save money on my grocery budget. But that's sort of like when people want to buy a house, they assume it's going to be healthy, that it's going to be, you know, warm and dry and all these things. And they don't get those things with our current model of house building. 
at least not guaranteed, they might get those things. They might not. And part of that problem is that when we design and build houses, we don't actually design them and prove that they'll perform before we build them. Mm. We just kind of chuck them up. Mm. And that's unfair in some ways, but it's also very true in a lot of ways. So it's the easy answer to, to look at that first cost is, is again, it's a, it's a market thing, maximizing profit or yeah. max, minimizing your cost. But it, it means you've ignored all the things like that your children need to get fed, right? So you've ignored that, you know, once you count the operational cost of building over 30 or, I mean, buildings in the United States are over 100 years old on average now. So we're going to get there as soon as our country has some more years behind it. So if you talk about a building being around for 100 years, looking at the first cost and not the operational costs is ludicrous. And the same thing if you look at the health impacts of buildings, the cost of, of having buildings built the way we do now and their impact on the occupant's health the cost is significant. It is ludicrous, but is there a workable market mechanism for that, given that people were generally only interested in the magic seven years uh, of, of being in one house? I don't know if there's an easy market mechanism to make that happen, outside of changing the building code. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So to me, and that's you, you talk about the building code and the fact that it's a um, it's often cited overseas as being a very good code because it's non-prescriptive uh, and then you go on to describe the the passive house standard which is as much a process as it is a standard which is also non-prescriptive because it's a set of performance outcomes so where's the difference how does the passive house standard differ from the new zealand building code it's well there's different numbers of course i think everyone knows that's so the passive house standard mm. has a very low energy standard right so you have to use a very small amount of energy so Effectively, high, high level of performance standard low level of energy required that's correct so that's one part but that's yeah. actually not the important part the important part in my well, at least to me the most important part is the fact that to do a pass file, you have to actually design and understand how the building's going to perform before you build it mm -hmm. so effectively before you build the building you've designed it so that it uses a minimum energy by modeling the physics of the environment around it and it's done in a way that it not only it not only includes the physics sufficiently accurately to predict the house performance very well, and that's been proven in real buildings overseas as well as now in New Zealand, but it also teaches the architects and designers how the building how that building perform and why. Yeah. And it teaches it and built into that standard is, is the important parts of the building physics with thermal comfort and moisture control, which translates into health. So it's all that stuff's built into that performance standard. So you can't get to that performance standard unless you do the job right. At the Whereas, design stage. At the design stage, yeah. right, correctly. So otherwise, if you look at the New Zealand building code, true, it's a performance standard. And if you used good software or good engineering to get to that end performance goal, you would have to look at all those things. But that's not what people do. Yeah. There's also a, there's what they call an acceptable solution standard in New Zealand. And it basically is a, it's a picture book. Let's call it a picture <laughs> book, not really. But it's a picture book of yeah. how you can build a house. And if you yeah. build it this way so it looks like these pictures, yeah. then council will give it the green bean, green bean, green tick, and you can build it. Yeah. And that standard is essentially a picture book. So architects and designers can do the least cost job for their clients. They can help provide the cheapest house. And it's legally allowed to be built if you just make it look like these pictures. Because in behind that picture book, there is something similar, which is the building performance index, the BPI, which you can do an AF calculation before. But what you're saying is that, that the level of that standard is, is so ridiculously low that people rarely have to engage with that building performance uh, index as required by the New Zealand Building Code, right? Well, also the building performance 
I mean, originally building code was designed to prevent buildings falling down on you. Yeah. So it does a good job on structures. In other words, right. keeping buildings from falling on your head. Uh, well, except for a few exceptions. <laughs> but, the, um, but as far as health and dryness and energy performance, that stuff was kind of band-aided onto the code just relatively recently in New Zealand. I mean, double glazing came in, in what, 2008? So, and it's not <clears> even, it's still not mandatory, even though yeah, most it's still people not mandatory. think it is. Yeah. Right. So, so we're talking about, you know, just the whole idea that you don't want liquid water inside your house running down your walls in the morning, mm-hmm. causing mold, is still not built into the code yeah. as a requirement, right? Yeah. So they, what they have is they have this acceptable solution. It says, well, if you put in double glazing, it's sufficient for all climate zones. If you have a solid concrete slab on the ground with no insulation, it by definition meets the code, even yeah. though it may or may not be, uh, it may or may not meet that performance index, yeah. even the yeah. very low performance index in the code. Yeah, yeah. So, so to me, that if you want to if you want to make homes healthy, warm, and dry, you need to address the building code because that's what people are going to target. Mm, mm. And yeah, so I often deal with brand new buildings that are built which are uncomfortably hot, they're crazy hot, and they've tried to build them well above code. But they haven't done the design model. So they, they've got a building that's overheating like crazy, and you don't know why. The architect's like, well, I just built it like the last one, but with better windows and better roof and better walls. And better, in this case, meant a house that's 35C, um, you know, for a month. <laughs> so that, yeah. that's an issue. And they don't know that until they built it yeah, because they I, haven't and, done and that work. That overheating issue, I think, is going to become more of an issue. We're going to see more, more and more of it, which brings us to one of the common uh, myths which you also address in the book uh, myth number one uh, you point out that uh, passive house uh, is a german standard designed for northern europe why is passive house in your mind uh, relevant to new zealand because it's designed for new zealand climates so the passive house standard is you got to use this much energy and you've got to have a nice healthy warm dry home you know, sufficient ventilation, all those things. Yeah. It doesn't say what climate you build it in. And so in our climates, for example, in Kaitaia, you would use double glazing in all passive houses unless you did something crazy. Mm-hmm. And you'd use a certain thickness of walls, which is above code, but not much. Yeah. Whereas in Cromwell, you would use, you would most likely always use triple glazing unless it's a huge building. Yeah. And you would use walls that are maybe twice code in terms of insulation values. Yeah. Um, so, so in Cromwell, the house costs slightly more to build and Kaitaia costs slightly less, but those buildings actually have the same energy bill at the end of the year. So to keep that building in Kaitaia warm all winter and the building in Cromwell warm all winter costs the same amount of money because it uses the same amount of energy. Yep. So and that does house- the, the design process that you, you talk about, does that address the overheating potential as well? It does, yes. So there's a requirement in the certification standard for the building to overheat less than a certain amount. Um, designers in New Zealand are realizing that New Zealanders are particularly sensitive to overheating. Yeah. So they're so the standard requires 20 C everywhere in the building is the standard, mm. but it requ- says in the summer you can be as long as you're below 25, everything's happy. The reality no, is, yeah, is yeah. for New Zealanders, they're more comfortable. They be they're at 20 C sounds good to them. They might want 21 or 22 yeah. sometimes, but they really don't want 25. They want 23 or 24. Yeah. So um so the people are starting designers are realizing that that the the uh, overheating permitted permission should be lowered for for high quality homes. Yeah, right. And you you're talking about PHPP here mostly in the in the, as the design tool. Is that right? That's correct. I've been avoiding saying it, but yeah, it's the passive house planning package. <laughs> you're avoiding so, that. Why is that? Uh, just I mean, it's it's a general audience. So the passive house planning package is a giant Excel spreadsheet that does the building physics 
sufficiently accurately, right? So it's it's nice because you can see what's going on and you can see why your buildings, for example, why your buildings overheating. You can yeah. see which windows are causing it. Or if you've got a cold pro, if you've got a building that needs more energy to heat, then you can look and see, oh, it's the ceiling or it's the walls or it's the slab. Yeah, I I think so, it's worth bringing up because it's such a, from what I've seen, a powerful um, and reliable tool that even if people don't go through the full process, to know that there's this tool there where you can check your design before you've you've laid one brick to know not only if is, is the house going to be warm, dry, comfortable in, in winter, but is it, is it going to be comfortable and cool in summer <clears> as well? Um, that's a hugely powerful tool. And, and people, I, I just want to let people know that that even exists. And there are people like yourself that are around who can do that modeling. So people have uh, assurance right at the design stage that they know exactly how the house is going to perform. Yeah, it's it's. Yeah, it's quite quick in the beginning to do a simple model of the home. Mm-hmm. But the, the reality is a simple model of the home includes all the windows and the overhangs and the site mm-hmm. shape mm-hmm. and the orientation of the building. Yeah. So it's, it's um, you know, I mean, I pick on passive solar every now and then because I see it done really poorly sometimes. But um, it, it's Which is effectively your myth it's, number two, the different, the, the, there's a fundamental difference between what's termed passive solar design uh, as opposed to passive house yeah. Standard. And the difference and the difference is the prediction, right? Mm. So if you if you're if you tell me you've designed a passive solar house and you've used a very good prediction tool like PHPP or there's some other tools as well to design the home so it's so it meets the same energy standard as passive house, then I'm fine with you doing that. Right. The reality right. is most passive solar homes, the term passive solar is used by architects and designers, let's be mean for a moment, um, <laughs> to just justify the design. So like I put concrete floors in and it's got a lot of north facing glass, so it's passive solar. So and big big good. eaves. Hopefully, yeah. sometimes not um, in Auckland. But that's another story. Right, right. Um, so, so the, um, so you know, so that's the issue I see with passive solar is how it's used to justify design choices that were going to be made regardless of what it was done. Right, right. So, passive house includes the the, the energy model includes the contribution of the sun's energy. Yeah. And it has to very accurately because it's a huge amount of energy. Yeah. Um, so, so it's needed. Uh, just before we finish up, the book I think is great in that it's not just a showcase of um, beautiful examples of passive houses at the time of writing 24 certified in New Zealand up from the first one in when was it 20, 2011 uh, 2012 I believe it was 2012 so, uh, yeah. so you know good progress there but I, I think there's a, it's a, just a really neat um, combination of a, a a summary of the science at the at the outset, but then also some inspiration. And again, that's what we need. We don't need someone just beating the industry over the head, saying how, telling us how bad it is, but some inspiration of how what can how it can be different and and a different way of doing things. And I think the the book achieves that really well. Thank you. So hopefully, it does provide some inspiration. But what what's uh, what else do you get up to other than now that you've finished um, writing the book? Um, what what do you do as a day job? What does sustainable engineering do? Um, so we're, the whole purpose of sustainable engineering is building science at scale, right? So we've got right now we've done we do things like factory thermal comfort and overheating homes and passive certification for all of New Zealand and parts of Australia where need they, they need help. Mm-hmm. But so we do all that building physics, that building science at scale, trying to get people the pieces of the science they need so they can get good homes 
before they build them so they're not going back and trying to fix things because it's really difficult to do that and does that mean that you can work alongside if someone's already got an architect and builder in in process they're looking after the sort of artistic creative side of things could they engage sustainable engineering to to check whether it's going to work yes so that's what we're doing so whether we're doing factories or homes that's what we do right so we don't do what we don't do architecture we don't do design mm-hmm. i just finished a pass pass renovation yesterday and i was speaking to the client and said okay well this is what you know this is the, the system you need to use to achieve the target you want you haven't found a designer architect like bring this to them and show it to them and if they don't laugh at you you know, hire them and we'll talk on the, the drawings you need to get together. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, find who you want to work with locally and we'll, we'll provide the science for them. And by doing that, we can just split out the small piece that we're really good at mm-hmm. and leave the local designers and architects to do the part they're really good with, dealing with local councils, making sure the building fits the right. yeah, and yep. fits the site. Um, so yep. we don't, we try not to mix those two things because it's yep. really difficult for one organization to do both those pieces. Yeah. Yeah. What's the next big step for Passive House in New Zealand? Big is the next big step. Ugh. So the last, the last section of the book is, uh, you know, passive house in the book is got 24 examples of certified passive houses in New Zealand. They're all single family homes. One's a two family home, right. but very shortly we'll have certified, uh, 17 unit co-housing unit down in Dunedin. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll have, uh, you know, a commercial, a small commercial building an apartment building in Auckland, perhaps. Uh, well, I expect it to happen. We'll see what happens. Yep. And then um, uh, Lodge, perhaps in Wanaka. So those are the four case studies in the book on future projects. I've also quoted and discussed with various councils some council buildings mm-hmm. and some dormitories. So I th- the next big thing for Passive House in New Zealand is, is going bigger than single-family homes. Cool. There's about 30, well, a little over 30 uh, Passive House single-family homes that are in work to be certified mm-hmm. um, right now. And, um, and But to me, the really exciting bit, the future, is, is larger buildings. Yeah. Because we've got some catching up to do there. Australia's about to overtake us. Uh, I think the Australians have. They've got a 150-unit college dorm that's going to be Passfile certified very shortly, I think. Yeah, we need to, we so, need to, we need to catch up again. Yeah. <laughs> well, if it makes us. you feel better. We, we, um, builders in New Zealand tend to build much better structures than the Australian builders Yeah. in kind of general terms. Yeah. If you look, you know, one of the good and easy quality measure of a building is how leaky it is, yep. you know, air leak it is. Yep. So you just pressurize it and measure how much air leaks out of the building. So in general... Um, New Zealand buildings are somewhere between three and five-ish kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Three air changes and five air changes per hour at yeah. a certain pressure. Whereas Australian buildings are about twice that. Yeah. So, um, and, and that's, it's somewhat surprising because those New Zealand builders are building these relatively tight buildings without really trying that hard. I mean, they're doing it to make a quality building, not because, not because they're trying to get the building tight. Yeah. We might, we might have to uh, get you back on at some point to talk about the uh, leakiness and, um, doing it by on purpose and not by accident um but uh for now what's uh how can people get in touch with you and find out more and and also get a copy of the book so the easiest way to get get in touch with me is to go through the website mm-hmm. so the website is sustainable engineering yep.co.nz and sustainable engineering is all one word or they can pick up they can sign up to get a free copy of the book the pdf download will be available on the first day of the passive house conference down in wellington yep. on the 9th of february and that'll be uh, the easiest place to go for the book is warmhealthyhomes.co.nz. Warmhealthyhomes.co.nz. And we'll put links up uh, to both those in the show notes for this episode. Thank you very much for your time, Jason, and also for uh, choosing New Zealand to come and uh, uh, embark on your second very worthy career. It's been beautiful. I love it. <laughs>
<laughs> awesome. Hey, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. And that was Jason Quinn from sustainableengineering.co.nz. And I encourage you all to head on over to warmhealthyhomes.co.nz. That's warmhealthyhomes.co.nz, all one word. And you'll be redirected to Jason's website, uh, but a page on the website, Sustainable Engineering, where you can download your free copy of Jason's book, Passive House for New Zealand. It uh, goes through all of those 24 certified houses that are currently uh, have been built and certified in the country. And Jason's had something to do with each and every one of those. Uh, as Jason said, uh, it'd be great to get some other typologies on that list, including some re renovations, retrofits. But we need some other types of buildings. You know, Passive House isn't just residential. It's uh, You can apply the principles, the science, and the practice to any type of building. So who's first? We've got a co-housing project coming online soon, but we want to see some offices, some schools, some uh, public buildings, anything. So if you've got a project in mind or you know about a project or if you know some people who need a passive house, get in touch. You can contact me, matthew at homestylegreen.co.nz. I'd love to uh, either help you out directly or point you in the right direction. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, hopefully there's uh, more to come. Got some a few prospective interviews lined up. And uh, if you know of other people that you think we should get on the show, then I'd also love to hear those comments too. Thanks very much for tuning in. Now go make a better place to live.